Good morning, church. Let's try it again. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm Joe Greenwood, and today's scripture reading is from Acts 16, 11 through 40. So stay with me, stay focused, and let God's word resonate upon you. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a league which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of div divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner cell of the prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paulus and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out, of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Joe. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors for the Vessel Church, your sister church here in San Angelo. I'm glad to be able to be here with you this morning, hopefully encourage you. Um, in this very long text, Joe, thank you for sticking it out, man, and making it through that. But um, it, I wanted to be able to be over here for a little while. I know Brian and Ryan, we've talked for a while, being able to get together and, and do this. And, and so I hate that the circumstances are like this where they can't be here. But um, I think there's a beauty about what the Lord is doing in San Angelo. And the Redeemer Network has given us a, a, a beautiful connection uh, to link arms and to make a difference in the city as we proclaim the gospel. And so it's exciting to get to actually be together with uh, the larger scope of the body of Christ uh, in, in this place today. So uh, with, with Acts, I know we're just jumping into the middle. Y'all probably been going through your own study, but um, this is where I've been, where I've been processing through. And so I think it, it means a lot to where we are as a church today. Um, specifically for uh, young churches like us, for, for us being the vessel, y'all being uh, Redeemer Church, and um, what the Lord wants to do with his church. Um, I think it's easy for us to, to, to get sidetracked into the rhythm and just the expectation of, uh, of, of the institution of the church, and we, we often miss the larger mission of what we've been called to do and how the Lord wants to do that, how he has been working through the centuries. And so I hope this text encourages you, Paul, uh, and, and his team right here, and where we're going to step into the text is on their second missionary journey, where they are traveling back through, um, really kind of addressing some new ground. And what's funny is that that wasn't necessarily Paul's intent. At the very beginning of chapter 16, Paul had a plan to go back through and, and really kind of address some of the churches that that they had already helped plant, um, seen the Lord already working in. And uh, what the text tells us in uh, verse, uh, lost it, verse 6 and 7 is that the Holy Spirit stops him. It keeps him from can, going back in this path that he's going. In fact, just leading up to all this, there's a big disagreement that happens between Paul and Barnabas about taking John Mark with them. And what I love about that just, just something that I think is crucial for us as the church is we can disagree about things. We can, we can butt heads a little bit, but the mission has to continue in it. And that's what happens for Paul and Barnabas. In fact, the Lord multiplies the mission through this. Where they were together planning on going in this one direction, the Lord splits them out and sends them even further than what they could have imagined. And so what happens at the beginning of chapter 16 is what's called the Macedonian call. Where, where Paul hears very clearly this call to go to, to, to uncharted territory, to begin to proclaim the gospel in a place that they hadn't been before. And so I, 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 as Paul goes in this direction, we fall into the text here that Luke has preserved for us. And so look back with me again at verses 11 and 12. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in that city for some days. So what I love about this is Paul hears the call from the Lord to go, right? Tells him, I want you to go to Macedonia. And what does Paul do? He goes. 
Now, I don't have time to share the whole story, but when the Lord called us away, we served at, my wife and I served at College Hills for about 10 years here in town. Most of y'all know College Hills. We were there for a little over a decade. And when the Lord started to work in calling us away from College Hills, it took me two years to finally say, okay, I'll go. Because I loved what I got to do. I loved being a part of that church. But the Lord had something different that he had planned for that. But Paul here, it has this laser-like focus. When he hears the direction to go to Macedonia, he goes. He doesn't waste any time. He gets up there and begins to do the work. And so he gets into uh, Philippi, this Roman colony, this, this new uh, city that is there and begins to preach the gospel. In verse 13, it tells us, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the city gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul immediately starts to engage the city. He, he goes to the place of where people are. And why I want to note this, why I think this is important for us, is that we, when we think about what it means to proclaim the gospel to the city around us, I think it gets pretty overwhelming. At least it does for me. When, when I, I'm in and out of businesses every day and I hear the conversations that are going on around me, just horrible things that have gone on over the weekend, broken lives that are so far from anything in Christ that overwhelms me. I think, where do we even start? And what I love about Paul here is Paul knows his pattern has been throughout Acts. Wherever he comes into a new city, he generally will go to a synagogue. And there's a very good reason for that. I think Paul goes to the place where people are already seeking the Lord. And he goes in there and he begins to expose truth for, for, uh, in the midst of them and the gospel begins to change lives. And so I think this is the similar idea, knowing that people who are searching spiritually typically go to a body of water, to a river or a lake, and they sit down and they pray together or, or, or meditate or, or whatever it is. And so Paul goes to this fertile ground and begins to proclaim. Where is it for us that we can begin to go? to begin to share the hope of the gospel? Where are the places that it's, it's natural that for us to begin to, to reach out to the people around us? I think about coworkers. They, we already have relationships with them. Why not stop and ask, how do I pray for you? Knowing the needs that are in their lives, actually hearing what our neighbors tell us about the, the things that they're going through in their life and begin to expose them to the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ that changes lives. To, to spend time, uh, diligent time, using our, our, our money, our time, our resources to be able to proclaim hope to the world around us. We don't have to start something new. The lost are around us. Those that are far from God are around us. And so we start where the Lord is opening up the doors, just like Paul did here. And so as Paul begins this, begins to share this hope and what uh, I think Luke draws out for us in this is there are three key people that I see are drawn out in the midst of this text. Obviously, there are more that come to the gospel in this. We can imagine that the work that Paul does is God has empowered him as the Spirit is working him, that lives are being transformed throughout Philippi. But, but Luke, for whatever reason, chooses to highlight three people. And as I was studying through this and looking at these three people, there are th some things that begin to, to jump out to me about what the early church looked like that I think is so crucial for us as a church today. So uh, look with me in verses 14 and 15. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. And so here's Lydia. Uh, the, the text tells us a few things about her, that she's from the city of Thyatira, which uh, is an Asian city. Uh, we know that she is, uh, that city in particular is in the center of the dye trade. And so that's why she is a seller of purple. That is also an indication to us that she is probably a very wealthy woman because purple in that culture was considered something that royalty typically used. And so a lot of money was spent for, uh, to, to, to gain purple items. My mother-in-law would be very happy. She ensconces herself in purple. And so anyway, I don't know why I said that, but it just fascinates me that how much she loves purple. So anyway, she's royalty apparently. Uh, so Lydia, this woman who has wealth, she, some of the scholars think that she's probably establishing a new route of trade in Philippi. And so she is, uh, she is this woman of wealth. She's status. She's got the entrepreneurial spirit. And yet here we find her at the river still seeking, right? She, she's got everything from at least an American dream standpoint that we would want. And yet here she is seeking God. It, it tells us, the text tells us that she's a, a God-fearer she may not be a Jew. She may not have completely converted to Judaism, but she's searching for something in the midst of this. And so here Paul comes in and begins to speak the word to her, the gospel to these women. And verse 14 tells us, I love this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. I love this because I've spent too much of my life trying to convince people to follow Christ. I've spent too much of my life trying to have the best arguments, most creative ways of presenting the gospel. And what does the text tell us? The Lord opens her heart. Doesn't that take so much pressure off of us? That we are happy proclaimers. We are people that are called to just go and share the testimony of what the Lord has done in our life. We don't have to be people who, who, who can articulate every theological thought and be able to go through the Greek and the Hebrew. That If you do that, that's great. That's fine. Learn more. Grow in depth. But it should be something that changes your heart so that you go and proclaim that hope to the world around you. And so God works in this woman's life. This woman who has, by all accounts, everything, she hears the truth and it transforms her life. Verse 16, sorry, verse 15 tells us that her whole household is baptized along with her. Now, before we jump past that too fast, because it's always been a head-scratcher for me, why typically you see in this the whole household responds to this. I, I don't know all of the answers to this, but I know they're not auto-saved, okay? I know that my kids, just because I follow Christ, my kids are not automatically saved. And so my belief is, and again, this is the beauty of a life that is well-lived for the gospel, that as Lydia invited Paul into her life, as, as Paul began to spend time with her family, that they heard the same gospel, that the Lord opened their hearts. They saw it lived out in Paul's life. They saw the change that happened in Lydia's life. 
probably most of us in this room have a similar story about how we begin to see God transform somebody close to us. That they're, they're a whole different person. I share a story of a, a college student that we had with us. And when he first came and started spending time with us, he would blow us out of the room with his language. I mean, the other college guys were going, are you going to get him to stop cussing? And I said, he doesn't know Jesus, man. Why, why would we expect him to live like that? The Lord changed his life. The Lord brought him to a place of understanding the fullness of the gospel. He dropped to his knees and asked the Lord for forgiveness in his walk with him. Months later, we were playing disc golf. We were spending time out on the course at ASU, and these other group of guys joined in and started playing with us, and their language was just as colorful as his was back in the day. And he would, he would lean over to me. He goes, you going to tell them to stop cussing? They can't be doing that. It's like, dude, that was you just like two months. No, I didn't talk like that. It's like, yeah, your mind was in the gutter, dude. And it just blows my mind how, Lord, how the Lord takes a heart and takes it out of the filth and the wretchedness of this world and makes it something new and fresh. And that's my belief of what they saw here in Lydia's life and in Paul's life and why they were transformed and why they came to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last thing I want to highlight in that section Hospitality spills out of Lydia, doesn't it? When the Lord changes her life, her response is, come stay with us. The text tells us she prevailed upon them. So it wasn't like, hey, Paul, you want to come over and hang out? It was like, you're coming to my house today. I want you to come and stay with us. We need you and your team with us. I guarantee you she wanted to be discipled. She wanted to know more of who the beauty of this God is. We cannot exhaust that. That's why someone stands in this pulpit every week and proclaims this hope. That's why we sing songs over and over and over. That's why you're challenged to go home and take the Word of God and study it and read it for yourself because we cannot run out of the depth of who our God is and He continues to change every aspect of who we are. And so hospitality pours out and she invites Him in and a church is born. Isn't that beautiful? There's no fanfare. There's no months and months and months of preparation. And I know there's a lot that goes into all of this. But the body of Christ forms right here in front of us. And it changes the world. If you go back and read, I was looking over it again this morning, just refreshing my mind in, in, the, in the book of Philippians. What the Lord did there. And how Paul praises the Lord for what he is doing in that church and how he's transforming that city. Something that started so small and began to grow. Paul's mission isn't done. He, he didn't get his notch in his belt and move on. He goes back to the fertile grounds by the river. And verses 16 through 18 tells us, as, as we're going back to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So our second character is the slave girl in verse 16. She, the, the text gives us a little bit of insight into who she is. Obviously, she's poor. She's a slave. Okay, so... Uh, likely the owners aren't very keen on giving her 
money. They don't care much about her. They just want what she can do for them. We can safely assume that she probably isn't a Roman because she's not underneath the, the Roman law having the rights that would normally be associated with that because she is a slave. Um, we know that she's demon-possessed and that she has the ability, because of that possession, to tell fortunes. She's able to tell something about people's futures or something in, insight into their lives. And I'll remind you, that's important to remember that this is something that God has forbid his people throughout the years. The, the idea of running to horoscopes and fortune tellers and all these things is, is not just the old... Um, traditional, I grew up very Baptist, and so there were a lot of things that we just didn't do, and I never really understood why we didn't do some of those things, but this is one of those things that I think is very clear, because we have a God who is in control of our lives. We have a God that we run to. We don't have to go to fortune tellers to know what's in store for us in our future. Our God has already promised it, and so that's why we run to his word. We run to his truth to understand him and know him, not some fictional future that some demonic influence can tell us or, or, or even randomly generated horoscopes can tell us um, online. That's a whole other story. I'll, I'll get off that. But So we've got this demonic influence going on in this young girl's life. And she follows Paul around and his companions, and she's screaming out over and over and over really the truth. These men have come to proclaim the way to salvation. What's the problem with that? Why, why does Paul get so annoyed with her and tell her to stop and call out the demon that is within her and free her from her, uh, free her from it that is within her. I think it, it comes down to the same thing that we see in our culture over and over and over today, is these prosperity feature, teachers, these, these guys who have, have taken a little bit of the truth and they pulled it in, just like Satan the deceiver always does, and begins to corrupt it. They sound just enough like the rest of what is biblical that they can skirt by, and because we don't spend enough time knowing God's word ourselves, we fall into that trap. And Paul is wanting to make a very, remember, this woman has made her owners wealthy. She is well known in Philippi as the one you go to for your fortune. And so Paul wants to make a very clear distinction that they are not associated. Too much, too often, God is just another part of the buffet of other gods that we worship in our culture. We, we just take a little bit of God here, a little bit of this here, a little bit of Buddhism here, and we go through all these things and we begin to pull them all out and we make this, this mashup of spirituality. Our God is not like any other God. Our God is not common. Our God is other. He is holy. He is set apart. And Paul is drawing a very clear line here and saying, no, you have no power in this place. Get out of here. You, you don't look anything like the truth. You may proclaim a portion of it, but you are not. This, this pagan worship is not the way to salvation. And so I think that's where Paul gets annoyed and calls her out on this, calls this demon out of the midst of it. And so God touches her life. She's freed from this bondage that she's been under. What does this freedom mean for her spiritually? Text doesn't give us any more insight into it. It doesn't go any further than that. I am telling you from just my opinion on what I feel like I've seen from the rest of Scripture. Every time God, Christ encountered a demonic presence and freed them from that, 
they ran to him and began to follow him. This is just my opinion. This is just what I'm trying to discern from the rest of Scripture. But can you imagine the weight that has been lifted from this woman? She's under really triple bondage. She has been a slave. She is under the bondage of the demonic presence that's in her life that always, always throughout Scripture wrecks their lives, wreaks havoc on them physically. And then finally, just the one that we all universally are born into under the bondage of sin. She is a sinner who sins, who is, needs a Savior to restore her. And so Christ offers freedom. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, it's a text that just weighs heavy on me. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. That's this woman. She's under the most bondage that most anyone could ever be under. And Christ says this, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, the book that y'all are about to probably draw a lot from. And you will find rest for my soul. You, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't you love how Christ changes that? where the weight of our sin and our rebellion crushes us. It destroys our lives and the lives of those around us, and we submit ourselves to him. And he changes everything. And he doesn't say, you're free to just go do whatever you want. We submit to him. He puts his yoke upon us, the text says. He says, my yoke is light. It's where you'll find true rest because I want to lead you to the path of salvation. Just like a parent would do with their child. I I didn't let my kids, I I didn't say, y'all are free, go do what you want, enjoy life, and let them go play in the street. There was enough wisdom there to say, that's not going to end well for you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to discipline you, because I love you, and I want you to know a better path. Yeah, in my opinion, I think the Lord changed this young woman's life. And we see the second part of the church formed. And then this exorcism brings in the last character for us. In verses 19 through 24, And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice or accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering that the jailer keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The cost here of following Christ is immense. The money that these guys lost, the profit that they lost, clouds what's important for them. And so they begin to lie. We've seen this before with Paul the cost of what it takes for him or what we will see later on for him to follow Christ means oftentimes beating and, and, and loss of freedom. They lie in the court of public opinion. They, they, they leave these guys fractured and rejected by their community. 
In our world today, it's something that we will face as we follow Christ. If we are faithful and bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will cost us much. I think social media is a a breeding ground for a lot of this today. I think lies are told over and over and older. Deception is spread about the body of Christ. And here we have Paul and Silas stuck in the midst of death, this giving this young woman freedom and being placed into their own bondage. What I love is what you see next. They've been stripped. That, those are some of my worst dreams. That realizing I'm the only person in the crowd not wearing clothes. Can you imagine the reality of that, of being without any, uh, any choice of your own, being stripped down and beaten for doing absolutely nothing wrong? The text tells us this. I love, I love this. About midnight, starting in verse 25, Paul and Silas are doing what? Praying and singing. They're not having a pity party. They're not saying, why me? They're proclaiming the Lord. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling uh, uh, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You in your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Paul and Silas attacked stripped of their dignity, stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, likely by the same jailer that they've been put, uh, uh, has, has oversight over them. They're thrown into prison. Archaeologists, archaeologists think that it's probably in Philippi was, a, was an old cistern that was converted into a prison. They're thrown into the lower parts, the inner part of the prison, and to top it all off, they're put into a torture device. They're put into the stocks. Their back is broken, and bleeding, they're naked, and the only way that they can get any kind of comfort is to lay down in the filth of this prison floor. And their response is to sing. Their response is to pray. What do we do when we deal with the difficult times in our lives? Do we say, poor me? Do do we bemoan all the things that we've had to go through? I've been a good faithful servant of yours, Lord. I've I've cared for people well. I've I've used my money to, to, to help others who are in need. It's not their response. Their response is to remind themselves of the truth of who God is, what he has promised, what he has done, and what he's going to continue to do in their lives. 
They sing those praises. We don't sit here in this room just out of habit to sing songs because they're catchy and they're fun. We remind ourselves through song of who our God is and what he has promised and what he's going to do. We need that reminder every single day. The world is hard. We deal with junk all the time. The weight right now of sickness, what it has cost us in our society today, the fracturing that it has formed. I just read this week in in Meatloaf's death, one of the things that he said before he died is, I'm going to hug people. He knew, from a guy who, from all accounts, is far from God, knew that we need that connection. He said, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to hug someone's neck. This world costs much for the sake of the gospel. But we remind ourselves over and over and over who our God is and what he's done. And so as they're singing and proclaiming, the prison's shaken, the door's open, and where they should have ran, they stayed. I would have ran. In fact, everybody stays. All these people that are sitting here listening to Paul and Silas stay. Why? I don't know. But it changes this jailer's life, doesn't it? He has seen what has gone on the days before the freeing of this woman that he has probably availed himself of at some point or another to, to have his fortune told, guessing. But he knows, absolutely knows who this woman is and she's been freed from that. He's taken part probably in beating Paul and Silas. He, he's heard them falling asleep listening to them proclaim the worth of their God. And so he falls shaking on his knees before them and says, what must I do to be saved? You have something worth more. I've spent my whole life in this and it's not worth what you have found. Tell me about it. And the gospel again goes forth and the God again opens their eyes, his and his household's eyes and they hear the gospel and they're transformed. Lydia, an Asian woman of wealth and power, a slave girl, possibly a Greek, in spiritual and physical bondage, a jailer, a Roman servant, a a blue-collar guy, each see the power of man fall before the power of God. And their lives are transformed. And a church starts. The value of the things of this world We need this reminder every day. The value of the things of this world pale in comparison to the power of our God. And he is worth absolutely everything. And right here in an incredibly beautiful picture, enemies become friends. They become brothers. What does he do? The same thing he did with Lydia. Come to my home. Let me bandage your wounds. Let, let Let me share a meal with you. The shame should have overpowered all of that. What he had inflicted on these guys should have kept him from doing that because the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth more. It changed everything for him. He didn't cower in the corner. He wanted to know from these guys more about who his God is, what he has shown them and taught them. 
So why is, is Luke, at least for us today, relaying the offense of Philippi? Why are they important to us? Obviously, there's plenty of things that we could, we could spend all day unpacking in just this fairly long text. But I want, I want to point you to this. Who is, belongs in the body of Christ? Who should we be going and loving and caring and bringing in to this place of community, this place of healing, this place of hope in with our lives? The text, what we see here, none of the distinctives of who these people were disqualified them. Their ethnicity, their background didn't change any of that. Their socioeconomic status didn't change any of that. What they had to offer didn't change any of that. God called each one of them out and began to use them in the body of Christ to change Philippi. Are there people that come to mind when you think about who would walk through this door? When you open up your homes that you think, man, I can't let that guy in here. I can't let that woman in here. They're crazy. Are there people that you think throughout the city that you encounter as you drive around or as you go to work that you've had to have conflicts with at your place of business that you think, man, they're just too far gone? Not for our God. I mean, the beauty of that to be reconciled. But it hits me every, while, every once in a while that there are people I've had conflict with in my life that I'll spend eternity with in, eternity, in, in heaven. But the guy, my, my uh, seventh grade year of, of junior high, the guy that got mad at me and smashed my head into a brick wall, a year later I got to share the gospel with him. Enemies are brothers now. I'll get to see him in heaven in eternity. Some of you have dealt through some horrible, horrible divorces, separations in family, relationships broken with, with old friends or coworkers. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it now makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the church should look like. We should be a beacon to the world around us. This, this eternal look of eternity, live and vibrant here now. No matter what our background is, that this should be a place of healing and hope, that people can come in and proclaim that truth together. And so my challenge for you in this text today is to, to remember that. To consider what the world should look like. There's a great book called One Blood by John M. Perkins, and he says this, we are one human race, we are one blood, all created from one man, Adam, and we are saved by one blood, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, who gave his life to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. It's hard work. It, it takes consistent effort, putting ourselves aside and putting the cross in the front, so that we can love those around us. And I believe absolutely this text calls us to that. And the last thing, as this beacon, as this, as this eternal hope lived out vibrantly among us is the second part of what I think Paul responds to in the last part of this text. 
Paul has already made the distinction we are not another pagan religion. And so he's, as, as the healing happens with this jailer, the next morning the text tells us that when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, who have thrown us, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Paul did here. Paul is seeking to make sure and make very clear that what the Lord has started in the church in Philippi is not some aberration. It's not some thing that is meant to disrupt the world, but it's meant to change the world for the better. And he's making this clear distinction that what they did was wrong and that the church is there to make a difference. And so the question for us is how does this church, how does the vessel church, how how does all the, the network of churches, Redeemer and Redemption and all the other churches that are in our network of churches, how do they make a difference in the cities that they're in? When the world looks at us Do they see us huddled together trying to to keep ourselves warm and not taking that warmth and that hope into the world around us? Or do they see us going and making a difference? Do they see us going into the dark places of the city, the places that nobody else cares about? Historically, all through history, the church has made a difference. The church was the one who has consistently has consistently started new hospitals, places of care for the people that were sick. The church has consistently been the one who has cared for the orphans, for the, for the abandoned. On and on in church, we have seen throughout history the church making a difference in the world around them and the world going, I don't know what's wrong with you. You don't live for yourself, you live for something more. And so will we be a church that lives for something more in San Angelo? Will we be seen as a place of hope and healing and care despite people's backgrounds, despite their ethnicities, despite their sexual preferences, despite whether they've committed abortions? Will we love people and walk with people and do the hard work to be involved in their lives? It takes setting ourselves aside. It takes setting our preferences aside. And it takes putting the gospel at the forefront of our lives. So the beauty of this new church being launched is still continuing today. How do you make a difference today? How will you make a difference at your job, among your neighbors, among your friends in San Angelo? Father God, I think our our flesh, it demands so much of us. I know my preference is to to eat well, sit in front of the TV, and just live my life. 
man, God, you've called us to an adventure. You've called us to something more. And will we be people found like Paul and Silas that proclaim your worth even in the darkest times in our lives? God, would, would you raise up in the body of Christ in San Angelo, Redeemer San Angelo, the vessel, the, the, the churches all over our city, would you raise us up to be a, a beacon of hope in the city around us? Certainly the gospel is offensive. Gospel's hard for people to swallow. It's hard, it was hard for me to swallow. But when you opened my eyes, Lord, when you made that change, you gave my life purpose. You changed everything and you're changing everything every day. And so, Father, use us as a church to make a difference in the world around us to take that same hope and proclaim that well. In your name I pray, amen. For the next few moments as we, as we worship, um, I just want to remind you, um, if you uh, possibly are new to Redeemer this morning, that if you have committed your life to Christ, that we have the Lord's Supper open for you to respond uh, to the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. Um, this time of worship is a time to proclaim, continue to proclaim those truths, to reflect on God's word and what it means for us. Use this time to do business with God, to run to him, to listen to him, to respond to him.